traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The global number of confirmed cases of coronavirus has exceeded a million. A quarter of them are in America. The virus has already claimed over 5,000 American lives and cost over 10 million jobs. Its new epicenter is the country's largest city, New York, and the surrounding tri-state area. In less than a week, President Trump's tone has shifted from promising a speedy return to normality. I hope we can do this by Easter. I think that would be a great thing for our country. To backing his medical advisors in a grim reality check on the potential death toll. 100 to 200,000. It's a lot of people. The question is, what would have happened if we did nothing? After a rare moment of political unity to pass a $2 trillion stimulus package, the old battle lines are being redrawn as left and right states and federal government argue over how best to save lives and the economy. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, can America unite to fight the virus? My guest is Senator Cory Booker, his state of New Jersey the hardest hit after its neighbour, New York. Until last January, he was among the hopefuls in the most diverse field in history to compete for the Democratic presidential nomination. He was even rumoured to be a favourite of Barack Obama. Initially hailed as the face of a new generation of moderates, his own soft centrism failed to resonate with divided Democrats. He's now backing Joe Biden's candidacy and gearing up for what's expected to be easy re-election to the Senate. With a seat on its powerful Judiciary Committee and a Twitter following to rival Biden's, he remains one of the most influential African-American voices on the Hill. Senator Cory Booker, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello, and thank you for having me on. The coronavirus pandemic is being compared to two big watershed events in recent history, the financial crisis and even 9-11. You were on the city council and mayor of Newark during those events. How does this compare in scale and impact for you? I think the challenge right now is we don't know. We're in a crisis that uh, we still don't know the full scale of it and we don't know the duration. And so those uh, variables right now make this all the more challenging. I'm in New Jersey, sitting in Newark right now, our largest city, and we know that the wave is coming to this New York metropolitan region first, and we still don't know what the peak will be. And so there's a lot of uncertainty and, frankly, a lot of fear, and that makes it very different than a lot of the aspects of 9-11 or even just uh, the recession in and of itself because it's so tied to health and well-being. And the level of death we're seeing now in this state is shaking a lot of folks. You know, yesterday we had uh, the death of a firefighter, 33 years old, no underlying conditions, two children. And unfortunately, from firefighters, first responders, medical personnel, as well as Americans of all backgrounds, the deaths going into the thousands already surpass 
what we saw on 9-11 and threatened to be a lot worse over the coming days. And this combines with record levels like we've never seen before of unemployment uh, and more. And so this is an unprecedented challenge and is going to necessitate, frankly, an unprecedented response from us all. We've heard the mayor of LA, Eric Garcetti, saying today that people should wear masks if they go out and about. There is some controversy about that and a number of leaders now disagreeing with World Health Organization guidance on that. What's your own view on masks, useful or not? Well, first and foremost, we all should understand we're all in this crisis and we're trying to do our best. Eric and I have been friends since we studied together in Oxford. I know Eric makes decisions based on facts and the facts that he's seeing. And so from what I'm reading, the evidence shows that masks do help to uh, limit the spread of infection. Now, the challenge we have here in New Jersey is we don't want people leaving their homes, period. And so this idea that a mask will help keep you somehow safer uh, might encourage people to do what we don't want them to do is to go out. So uh, again, and you think there is a risk in recommending the wearing of masks that people think that they have more protection than they have? Exactly. That's my concern. So you wouldn't recommend what Mr. Garcetti recommends? Um, I recommend that if you have to go out, that you take every precaution that you're able to. And yes, putting coverings over your face from the science and the data that I'm seeing makes a difference. Uh, it does not give you 100% protection in any way near that. But uh, if you go out, you should consider wearing a mask. Last week, the gravity of the crisis was symbolised, I think, by photos from Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, people queuing up for testing and refrigerated trucks having to be brought in when, when the morgue was, was full, a, a grisly image and one that disturbed a, a lot of people. What are you able to do in New Jersey to avoid repeating situations like these? Look, we are all hands on deck. Governor Murphy, myself, uh, Senator Menendez, and others are troubleshooting every day to try to source critical needs from ventilators to protective equipment and more. I've been on the phone with people connected to supply chains literally all over the globe to try to get this state what we need. It is frustrating to me, the federal response Uh, their lack of anticipation of these needs, their lack of using the Defense Production Act. And even now, uh, you see problems with ventilators that are being provided from federal stockpiles that are uh, not operable and need repairs. So this is a challenging period. And the, the resourcefulness of my doctors and hospitals and officials like Governor Murphy is, is impressive. But we are just dealing with unfortunately, a supply-demand problem. And as New Jersey and New York see the demand growing, the, the crisis we have is that it could overrun our ability to meet that demand with the, the limited supplies that we have. Have you been tested yourself? I have not been tested. And as I've said to New Jerseyans, if you have no reason to, if you're not being advised by a doctor to be tested, then you should probably not be tested. Because as we really expand testing capacity in our state. We are quickly getting capacity up, but we still are seeing more demands for tests than there are ability for us to process them. And so we're just asking people, if you're home and healthy and don't show any symptoms, please do not go for testing now because that unfortunately could undermine our ability to test people that do have reason to be suspicious that they have coronavirus based upon symptoms or doctor recommendations. 
You've talked briefly there about the federal response. We might come a bit more to that and, and to Donald Trump's personal response a little later. But what would you say to voters who might be thinking, well, there are other levels, and particularly in America, there is great power at state level. Were you and others late in taking this seriously as a domestic threat? You know, I remember my conversations with the governor early on when we were ringing the bell about the crisis that there was, in fact, in a late February rally with Nancy Pelosi in New Jersey. Uh, he and I uh, huddled in a back room to talk uh, very dramatically, frankly. At that time, it seemed dramatically. Now it doesn't about the steps that we were going to have to take. I think it's going to be very important to do a deeper post-mortem in an age where, frankly, global behavior is producing environments where such health crises can be more likely. Remember, we have industrial animal production, which is taking up the majority of our antibiotic use, making the possibility of antibiotic-resistant strains of diseases uh, to come about. I have to interject. Is that the argument of a vegetarian? Which I think you are. I'm actually a vegan and I would... An even more stringent case. (laughs) Yes, but the reality is I've called for, as many health advocates, for the reduction of usage, overusage of antibiotics because we are quickly putting ourselves in in a global crisis where we have more and more antibiotic resistance strains of, of diseases. And so there are global behaviors that are threatening not just our environment, but our resistance to disease and to pandemics. And we as a planet have to begin to have a more sobered understanding of these crises. America, for example, and this is something that coincidentally had just had a hearing on in the Small Business Committee, is the crisis we have of our supply chains, even for drugs like penicillin, dependent upon China for ingredients, for not having the production capacity here locally in our nation is really, really problematic. So this is going to be a a time that this country has to deeply reevaluate the practices from a national security perspective. And something as basic that we've known for a long time that in the United States of America, our flu gets supercharged in America because the majority of our food service workers don't have paid sick leave. Millions of Americans go to work every day when they shouldn't because they can't afford to give up a paycheck. And if they stay home without paid sick leave, they will lose that paycheck. So one of the complaints that's been made by Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who has emerged as one of the president's most vocal critics, is that this federal response is too weak, it's too piecemeal. It means, in effect, states bidding against each other and federal agencies for vital equipment. What does this really tell you about the response at the centre And what's the key thing that needs to change? I have seen leaders on both sides of the aisle rise to the occasion of leadership during crisis. Uh, Gosh, from Rudy Giuliani in 9-11 to Chris Christie, my Republican governor during Hurricane Sandy, leaders stand up and they are candid and sobered in their discussions. They rely on experts. They give truthful information. Uh, to people. And I, I've been almost stunned, if this president can still stun me, how in this crisis he has contradicted his top advisors, who are scientists, who are health professionals. For him to, to call this a hoax, to do rallies and call it a democratic conspiracy against him was so deeply irresponsible. And I think rippled out to even this past week, the governor of Florida should have acted so much earlier. And the fact that spring breakers were partying on the beach and then went back to their states 
all across this country and spread the virus was a direct correlation to a president that was not doing what he should have done a lot earlier. But the point you brought up about finding some way to rationalize this national crisis, in other words, stop states from doing what they're doing right now, which is bidding up against each other for critical resources. Let's take the response of the White House on that. The president says the only reason that Andrew Cuomo is getting so much praise is because of the field hospitals, the masks and other equipment that President Trump himself authorised. And indeed, his own advisers do say he listens. He may listen selectively as perhaps the undertone, but that he has changed his position and that he is acting. What do you say to that? Well, clearly this president has evolved during this crisis. The question is, is he getting to where he needs to be quickly enough? This is about being a leader that empowers the other leaders to get their jobs done. It should not be about the person who decides not to criticize but publicly flatter the president. That's not how decisions should be made. But a lot of what you say, Senator, could have been a criticism, particularly from Democrats, of President Trump since the get-go, since he got to the White House and even before. I know that the seriousness of this, the impacts, make it far more urgent. But it may be to an extent that you're preaching to the the choir, do you see the mood around Donald Trump's reaction changing in the direction that you espouse? Look, I'm I'm in New Jersey right now. And when I finish this interview, I'll get back on the phone with a a lot of others who are just troubleshooting deeply serious uh, life or death problems. And so I don't spend a lot of my thought process about the mood around him or or the approval ratings this president might have. Every single day you're fighting through crises enough to shake the the, the spirit and soul of, of, of this whole country. Let's move on to what you're seeing, particularly the impact on the economy and employment. 6.6 million people filing for unemployment benefits last week, more than double the previous week. That's already four times higher than we've ever seen before. What impacts are you seeing in New Jersey? And indeed, how far are you able to safely get around and, and see the impacts of this? It is staggering right now. We're having businesses shutter. We're seeing hundreds of thousands of New Jerseyans uh, applying for unemployment insurance. We are seeing uh, runs on our food banks that are extreme and, and threatening the capacity there. There are manifestations of this problem many people don't think of. We have uh, our domestic violence hotlines and services uh, reaching critical o- over subscription. So there's not an area of our society that I don't see being affected by the economic crisis combined with this health crisis. I'm the only United States senator that lives in a a minority community that in my neighborhood, my census tract, as they say, is is at or below the poverty line. And so a lot of folks just don't realize even telling people to stay at home or to isolate is difficult for families that have inadequate housing to begin with, often live in apartments made for, you know, two or three people that might have seven or eight people there, where there might be people that have to go to work living in a home with an elderly person or a person with an underlying medical condition. Um, It's just painful to see the fear and the worry and the concerns that folks have who are already on the margins of our society. And remember, America is a country where 40 plus percent of us can't take a $400 hit to our lives. I used to say two flat tires away from uh, having to sell something or go into debt. Well, 
Unfortunately, now people are seeing increased expenses or demands as their income is taking a serious hit. And that's why we have this huge $2 trillion economic aid package, the largest recorded in history. I think New Jersey is receiving about $100 billion of that, particularly to help the health system and expand unemployment insurance. You said it doesn't have everything you want. Well, given that there are, even in such times as we're in some sort of constraints on public spending, what more would you have expected and what more would you now be pressing for? Well, first and foremost, states are going to need a lot more resources. Everyone I've talked to in state governments and local governments uh, is facing what I saw as a mayor during the economic recession. We had massive layoffs. In fact, Newark, New Jersey, we lost one out of every four public workers for our city. We had to lay off. And in this crisis, uh, municipal leaders and states are facing really difficult decisions. And so I'm, I'm fighting for more flexible state and local aid. If not, we can see jobs of teachers in this country being in trouble, uh, first responders, and that could have really uh, devastating impacts. So in this next round, I'm hoping that we can do a lot more for uh, state and local governments, we can do a lot more to ease economic burdens on families from uh, direct cash payments all the way for in New York, New Jersey, in the last uh, Trump big tax plan, he took away people's ability to fully deduct state and local taxes. So there's a lot of holes that were left in this bill. And now that I think that people are coming to the consciousness that this is not something that's going to just go away by the end of April, but could endure well into 2021, I think the stage is being set for us to be more generous in what we're doing to help our economy go. And I think it's just really important to understand. I saw my Republicans co colleagues in a crisis come around to expanding on unemployment insurance, to come around to sick leave. I, I think there's got to be an expansion of the moral imagination of this country to know that things from housing to paid family leave to childcare are not generous entitlements you're giving to people, but they really are the connective tissue that keeps the body politic healthy and strong. To be the outlier on the planet's industrial nations and just common sense things is not just a morally right thing to do, it's the economically right thing to do. Then you would perhaps also have to kind of reach across the aisle, not just directly in the Senate, but you would have to persuade people of your argument who, at the moment, at least still feel to be pretty polarised. Do you think there is, you know, do you, when you're talking to, to people you don't necessarily agree with, do you think there is some coming together? You know, crises in our history have often been moments where that moral imagination expands. Indeed. Four girls dying in a bombing in Birmingham led to the outrage of white citizens, black citizens, and we changed laws. When women in a factory fire in New York called the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory were in sweatshop conditions, couldn't escape and hurled themselves out windows to die on the pavement, it led to a national call to change workers' conditions and workers' rights. I can go through our history that the darkest of periods have often yielded uh, pretty significant leaps forward and progressive policies that align with our senses of justice as well as our economic strength and well-being. I, I'm really hoping that this is one of those periods where we can catch up with our policies to better reflect our moral values and better prepare this country, make us stronger and more resilient for future challenges. But there has been in some 
sense there's a deepening of those trenches, hasn't the Democrats initially being labelled the pandemic party by Fox News, smearing of, of some experts as, as enemies by the president and those close to him. But do you think that the right, in terms of being a kind of, it's a very wide gripping in America, but do you think the right is taking the crisis seriously enough? And will it listen to the preaching as they may see it, of those who are coming from your persuasion. We're not as divided as we think. And and often our, our press and our politicians paint this left-right picture that just doesn't reflect itself in the true data. If you poll the Obamacare, it's wildly unpopular on the right. But if you actually poll the pillars of the Affordable Care Act, overwhelmingly the majority of Republicans believe you shouldn't be kicked off denied insurance because you have a pre-existing condition and the like. Even gun violence in this country Uh, If you poll just, do you think we should have universal background checks? Heck, 84% of NRA members believe in that. The lines that divide us are not nearly as strong as the ties that bind us as a country. It's why I work so hard across the aisle to develop the kind of relationships and connections. And that's something that I'm going to be doing uh, coming out of this crisis. Gosh, have you made a a new Republican best friend out of this situation, Senator? Uh, You know, when I went to Washington six years ago, I took Republicans out to dinner, sat in their offices. And, you know, Brene Brown is a great American writer who says it's hard to hate up close, so so pull people in. And the reason why I was one of the leaders on the criminal justice reform bill, the first major reform bill of its type that got passed under this president, was because of those relationships. The Opportunity Zone bill that's brought thousands and thousands of new jobs and investments in low-income communities was a bill that I wrote with Tim Scott across the aisle. So I'm just not one of these folks that doesn't believe that there isn't common ground in America. And I know from the 1989 earthquake in the Bay Area when I was out at Stanford to 9-11 to Hurricane Sandy, I've always seen the the capacity of this country uh, to come together in crisis, to stop turning against each other and turn to each other, to see our common humanity, to see our our, 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 our sense of, of common dignity. Let's talk briefly, if we could, about the 2020 elections. Well, not that long ago, you were part of the largest, the youngest, the most diverse democratic field in history. I think it was one of the best looking fields, too, in history. Just modest there. There's an outbreak of <laughs> modesty. Sorry. By, I'm, by trying, I'm trying to find bad Corey jokes Booker, wherever Now on I the can. record. How has the country ended up there with uh, three white males, 70-somethings, fighting it out for the presidency? If you're asking me to give you a post-mortem on why my candidacy was not successful, I, I can't uh, quite yet. Oh, come on. You must have a bit of a clue about why it didn't work out. Well, look, I, I, at the end of the day, I, I think there's an urgency to beat Donald Trump. And people were not making decisions upon the candidate that might best spoke to their heart, but were making decisions on the, who they felt like could best uh, win. And... Um, I think Joe Biden does speak to people's hearts. I think he he is somebody that uh, a lot of uh, people nationally, as a man who stood by President Obama, was an unfailingly loyal partner. I think a lot of people know him. He's a known known brand. They trust him. They believe in his heart as well as his mind. And so in many ways, I understand why he is what is uh, now a presumed nominee. Obviously, there's still Senator Sanders is still in this race. So but look, I think that we saw this wonderful field of Americans that is something that really speaks to the future. And I think Joe Biden has said quite explicitly he sees himself as a bridge to uh, what is going to be one of the more exciting periods ahead for the Democratic Party, where you're going to see more uh, diversity, more 
sort of lived experiences being represented on the national stage. And I think that that's wonderful. But you have uh, been critical of Biden in the past, haven't you? His relationship with segregationists when he was a younger uh, politician. There are also accusations about some of, of the ways that he has addressed women. Don't you have any reservations about that big generation gap, which now seems to be sitting there as the, the likely outcome of this. Joe Biden, as the candidate, a lot of people of the centrist, moderate, progressive persuasion like yourself feel a little disappointed. Look, I wouldn't have run for president if I didn't believe that I was best to lead the country. So, of course, I've got a lot of disappointment, but I've endorsed Joe Biden because I believe he could heal this country, that he can bring us together that he can unify us. Uh, And you don't have those reservations that others have raised, either about his previous statements or about his personal behaviours. I I think we've got one shot to make Donald Trump a one-term president. And this, to me, is a lot more than about political parties. This is about not having a climate denier in in the White House, not having someone who's trying to take away health care for millions in the White House, to not have somebody who uh, really... I see from what he's doing to our court system, putting more radical people, radical right people on. So you're prepared to forgive what we might call what you're considering to be lesser evils or lesser sins in Joe Biden. Am I right? I am prepared to do everything that I can uh, to make sure that Donald Trump is not the next president, that Mitch McConnell is not the next leader of the Senate, and that we field a team of Democrats who are committed not to being Democrats but to advancing this nation through crises that we face, as well as to what I believe this retreat we've had from the world. America first has really been America isolated and America alone from its allies. Uh, I'm committed to putting leaders in place that are going to help America ascend to be what I think we are, are called to be in many ways, a light of hope and promise to this, to this world. What about your so-called soft centrism? I mean, it, it seems to be making a, a sort of zigzag a, a advance. There were very bitter arguments with the left of the party. Do you think that has damaged the Democrats' chances? You know, I, I live in levels of urgency. And when I mean that, I mean quite literally. I live in a community where I'm a United States senator, and the only one I think that's had somebody shot on their block uh, where they live uh, and killed. I live in a community where workers work longer hours than my parents did. And they were hard workers, but they get less back and still live on the economic margins. I live in a community, I live across the street from a drug treatment center where I see noble people leveled by a disease, but still treated uh, like they're criminals. So what you say about left or right, and even within my own party, doesn't really translate to my lived experience. I'm an African-American male that lives in a country where There's no difference between blacks or whites for using drugs or dealing drugs, but they're four times more likely to be incarcerated for it. So the incarceration rates in my neighborhood are off the charts. I I just don't translate the politics that we talk about to the urgencies uh, that I see every day. Did did, did we just see a warm up then from you in terms of Democratic Party nomination fights? Might we expect to see you back in the fray at another opportunity? I am hoping that that question is something I don't have to answer for the next eight years, (laughs) which is to see uh, us win the White House back this time, see two terms of a Democratic president. I I just feel really blessed. I've had a a life where I've been able to have people put enough trust in me to try to make their lives better. We can't let you go without a a small note of uplift at the end of this very sombre period. And I know we've been asking a lot of our, our guests really how they're coping with varying levels of social isolation. 
poetry has been something of an aid to you. Have you got anything that you might like to share with us? God, I, I, I love poetry and post some of my own, uh, maybe generously called corny stuff on my own social media feeds. I won't quote to you my own stuff here. Uh, That's terribly bad value. <laughs> you know, I'm a guy that, that uh, grew up in a uh, household where African-American poets from Langston Hughes to Maya Angelou were part of the sort of background noise, even the, the, the stuff I ate for breakfast. So you know, African-American poets are people that have seen the wretchedness of society unflinchingly, but yet still found ways to hope and to believe. And so at a time that this country is on its knees, uh, maybe Maya Angelou's words where she says, you know, may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may be trotting me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I rise. And I know uh, fundamentally in my heart this nation and the human spirit will rise. We will overcome this uh, together. You're sending us to that uplifting place and a high level of literature there from Maya Angelou. We might just uh, squeeze an answer at the other end of the spectrum. You're known or indeed notorious for your dad jokes, if there is one that you would uh, hope might bring a fleeting smile to our lips. Well, I would tell you a a joke about COVID-19 yet I'm very confident you won't get it. It's all in the delivery, that one, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, And my prayer for you and your family is that you are safe and healthy and indeed do not get this terrible virus. Senator Cory Booker, thanks for being with us. No, thank you for having me on. And we want to know what you think. Can Washington unite this time to fight coronavirus? Do cash handouts help the right people? And maybe you have a joke up your sleeve to see us through the dark days of COVID-19. Share it with us and we'll let you know if it made us laugh. Write to us radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. And to follow our day-by-day analysis of America's handling of coronavirus, do subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or 12 of your English pounds. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.